6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. We're going to move in tonight in uh, Isaiah 14. We got last time, I believe, we got as far as verse 11 of Isaiah 14. And we're going to have the occasion tonight to get in some material that on the one hand is very uncomfortable for many, on the other hand is absolutely essential to our perspective of what's really going on, not only in the Bible, but around us day to day, moment to moment. The closer you are to some spiritual growth or some spiritual challenges, the more likely you're going to have powerful, supernatural opposition. And I'm not trying to sound medieval, and I'm not trying to sound excessively spooky. I think it's very important for us to get an insight as to what the Word of God has to say about the realities we face. You and I live in the physical world, but what we don't fully appreciate is the physical world is simply the manifestation of a spiritual warfare going on. That's, for, in large measure, invisible. So let's cautiously take a look at uh, some insights. Isaiah, in chapter 13 and 14, of course, has been talking about Babylon. And as we got to verses 9, 10, and 11, he was still talking about Babylon, but you could sense his style, Isaiah's style, was beginning to shift. His language gets broader. His scope gets more of an outreach, conceptually. When we get to verse 12, it actually has started earlier than this, but in verse 12 onward, for the next several verses, it becomes conspicuous even to the casual reader that Isaiah has shifted gears. His piercing gaze has gone through the king of Babylon to embrace the power that is behind the king of Babylon. And as he does this, the language becomes provocative and yet terrifying. Verse 12. Let's back up a few verses just to get his tone. Let's pick it up about verse 9. Sheol from beneath is moved to, for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Now this glimpse that Isaiah is talking about are those in Sheol. That's the Hebrew word. In the Greek it would be Hades, the abode of the dead. He's talking about the departed ones that are captive there and on apparently on the unfavorable side of things. Now his language could be construed as just language aimed at the king of Babylon himself, but we begin to see him shift his focus here. Verse 10, All they that speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become as weak as we? This implies that the king of Babylon has died. The, the mental image is that the king of Babylon has died and he's now in Hades. It's interesting that the people in Hades come to greet him. So we get some insights here that could be poetic language in the part of Isaiah or more likely is an insight that is more literal. Namely, that the 
the shades down there, the, the departed souls, are conscious, they're aware of their predicament, and they communicate with one another. Don't let anyone sell you the idea of soul sleep. Don't let anyone sell you the idea of annihilation. No way. The cosmic fact is that you are immortal, whether you like it or not. And you're going to spend your eternity either in the presence of God or hopelessly, irrevocably, in God's absence. And that's all hell is, is absence from God. Permanently. You put the word permanent and the word eternity together, and you got a heavy thing going on. But anyway, we move on here. All they that speak and, and say unto thee, you know, presumably the king of Babylon who's died here, art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the noise of thy lutes. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. So this is obviously speaking to a person who, at least figuratively here, is dead. And at this point, you could argue that even though the language is rather extreme, Isaiah is talking about the literal king of Babylon. At verse 12, though, his scope, that is Isaiah's scope, clearly changes. You can almost see a camera dissolve and a, and a refocus on the spirit being behind this personage. The personage of Babylon, the king of Babylon, was mortal. The guy behind him, empowering him, driving him, is something else again. Verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground, you who didst prostrate the nations? Well, fallen from heaven? Did the king of Babylon, whoever he was, fall from heaven? Hardly. Suddenly the scope here is shifted. The scope is manifestly something more celestial. O Lucifer, son of morning. Here we encounter a word, Lucifer, light bearer. Hillel to means to shine. It also means to howl or roar like a lion, by the way. This phrase is also found in the literature referring to Ishtar, Venus. It means the shining one. Let's pause for a moment as we dwell on the word Lucifer and drop back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2 we've dealt with as the, you know, the creation and uh, the creation of Adam. We get to Genesis 3, we have, of course, the famous chapter, the seed plot of the whole Bible, Adam's fall. The first verse, though, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And we have, of course, the famous narrative of how the serpent deceives Eve to break the one rule that God had given them. She is deceived. Adam was not, according to 1 Timothy 2.14. And we have the famous story, the famous event of the fall of Adam. And I won't get into that here other than to note this word serpent. Hebrew word is nahash, which means the shining one. It becomes the meaning the serpent after the fall. But this creature that was more subtle or more sophisticated, more advanced in wisdom, than any beast of the field doesn't mean he was a beast of the field. See the contrast? One of the things that Satan would love us to do is to treat this story as a quaint myth. And with the aid of our little Sunday school books and the peculiar sketches of the serpent coming down the tree, this whole story takes on the complexion of sort of an anecdotal parable or something. 
This personage, the Nahash, was the shining one. He was none other than the person we're about to read in Isaiah and a couple of other places we'll, we'll acquaint ourselves with as we go forward. See, our big problem in Genesis is that, first of all, you and I know virtually nothing about the world prior to the flood of Noah. The world changed so much at the flood of Noah that our ability to perceive what it was like beforehand is pretty foggy. We know there was no such thing as rain prior to the flood. Total different ecology, totally different climate, totally different world, D different longevities and so forth. Entirely different conception. I won't get into a Genesis study here, but just call your attention to the fact that there's a major discontinuity in our perceptions of the world from before the flood to prior to the flood. There is even a bigger discontinuity between the world after Genesis 3 and the world before Genesis 3. I can't have anyone prove to me that Adam lived only in three dimensions pre-fall. Now, I'm not trying to sell that idea. That's not my point. My point is our perceptions, our conceptions, our pre, uh, presumptions about Adam prior to Genesis 3 are probably very naive. And so when the, when the narrative tells us about the serpent, the Nakash, the shining one, who is, has more wisdom than any beast of the field, I'm not here to, to, to pontificate any theology. Was he Satan embodying an animal or was he in some more recognizable form? Eve apparently was not surprised to have this conversation with him. Did Adam, in fact, have thought transference with the animals? There's all kinds of people running around with ideas that are, are not attackable from the Scripture nor defendable. But the point is our conceptions are very likely to be very myopic about this era in history. So what we're doing to do as we go into these passages is to tread softly and just be conscious of our intrinsic presuppositions. Are we together? Back to Isaiah 14, because we're just getting started. Probably the way to attack this is to read through verses 12 through 17, and then go back and try to perceive what's, what's going on here. Verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, O shining one, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, you who didst prostrate the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. <laughs> Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble, who did shake the kingdoms? who made the world like a wilderness, destroyed its cities, and opened not the house of his prisoners? Well, the first point is we sweep through those uh, half a dozen verses. I don't think it takes a lot of scholastic insight to recognize that this ain't the king of Babylon. Something much bigger going on here. And the first principle that I want to alert you to is a methodological one, something to recognize that this happens frequently in the Bible, where the issue, the local circumstance that a prophet is moved to comment on causes the Holy Spirit to go far beyond that and give us an insight that vastly transcends the local circumstance. It happens here in Isaiah 14, and I'll show you a couple of other places where it also happens. So the first thing I want you to do is just from the point of view of your own methodology is to recognize as you read the Scripture, very often the scope of a passage vastly transcends the local context. 
And uh, when you're building doctrine, that's a different issue. You've got to be very conscious of context. But when you're just trying to learn and see what God has to say to you, you keep your mind open and recognize that local circumstances give rise to, you know, cosmic perception. So that's happening here. And obviously Isaiah is talking about one of the three angels, one of the three cherubim. Correction. Didn't say that correctly. There are only three angels that have names in the Bible. One of them, this one, was a cherubim, a cherub. And using the word cherub is a little awkward because we use the term in our vocabulary incorrectly. The word cherub connotates a fat little winged, you know, thing out of Renaissance art. Nothing to do with the biblical concept of a cherubim, of a cherub, in the biblical sense. The cherub, cherubim are terrifying creatures. If the seraphim and the cherubim are the same, and for my purposes I'm assuming they are, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1 and 10, and Revelation 4 we went through all that earlier. But recognize the cherubim are powerful. They're, they're super angels, if you will. Which one friend of mine said, a super studly angel, whatever that is. That's a... Now one of them has a name, and that's this friend, our friend here, Lucifer. Friend is in quotes. I'll tie that together shortly in another passage that we'll look at. The other two angels that, are, that have names, of course, are Gabriel and Michael. Those are the only angels that, to my knowledge, have uh, biblically justifiable names. It's interesting, by their passages, by the passages that mention them, by putting them together, it's very obvious they have very specific job descriptions. Gabriel is always on an errand of messianic meaning. In Daniel, he's giving him the 70-week prophecy, which predicts the very day Jesus Christ presents himself as king in Jerusalem. And when to Mary, of course, he's announcing the, the birth and so forth. He's always, whenever you see Gabriel, he's always on a messianic mission. He's clearly the angel in charge of messianic issues. Michael, if we saw Michael, he'd probably be in military dress. He is a warrior, always in a military mode and always on behalf of Israel. It's interesting that, there, that there's a consistency of, of presentation of those particular personages. But the guy that was in charge of all of them is this guy we're going to learn a little bit about tonight. Lucifer, son of the morning. The source of the problem occurs in verses 13 and 14. For thou hast said in thine heart... Question. Where did sin begin? It is not in Genesis 3. Adam fell in Genesis 3. Satan had fallen prior to Genesis 3. Where did sin begin? In the heart of Lucifer, who has several other names, Satan being one of them, simply meaning our adversary. For thou hast said in thine heart, and we have the five I wills. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Heavy trip. Ego trip. Through pride. Sin began in Lucifer's heart, and the root of sin was his pride. And as we understand that, we begin to understand why, in the Bible, from cover to cover, the thing that God hates most is pride. The thing that causes you and I the most trouble is our ego, our pride. And that is exactly uh, what caused Lucifer initially to 
blow the mission, if you will. Yet, verse 15, thou shalt be brought down to show to the sides of the pit. There are idioms here that show up in the Scripture quite consistently. We speak of the sides of the north. It's a strange phrase. But see, the sides of the north are sort of the limits of the earth. It's a way of expressing command of the whole earth. The sides of the north. That sounds like a, uh, you know, oxymoron, sort of self-contradictory phrase. Does the north have sides? No. See, it's interesting that God says, I will separate your sins as, you know, from the east to the west. Well, that's an interesting phrase. Because how far, how long can you travel eastward? Forever. You can keep going east without stopping, right? How far can you go north? Only to the North Pole. The difference between east and west is infinite. The difference between north and south is about 8,000 miles. You follow me? But so if you say sides of the north, you can conceptually use that as an idiom to embrace the earth, the whole earth. And the implication seems to be that Lucifer at one time had command of the earth. And this is suggestive. There are some scholars that believe there was a whole thing that happened prior to the creation of Adam. This gets into the so-called gap theory, that between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, there may have been a gigantic episode. And then the earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God brooded on the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there's a recreation going on. That's the so-called gap. It's, it's a very much abused position. Some people misuse it. But on the other hand, there's some interesting evidence. And we'll get into all of this when we get to later on in Isaiah, because Isaiah gives us uh, some perceptions here that give rise to that whole viewpoint. But the main point is, is that Lucifer fell prior to Genesis 3. His ambition is to uh, sit in the mountain congregation in the sides of the north. His destiny, though, is to be in the sides of the pit of the Abuso. So his destiny is totally antithetical to his ambition. That's sort of why those phrases are used antithetically one another. Verse 16, they that see thee, now it's interesting, we're going to see a lot about Satan, but um, I, I'm always amused by verse 16, because the impression that the writer gives here is that there will be a day when we're going to see this guy and we're going to be amazed at how limited he really is. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble? Who did shake kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness? And destroyed its cities and opened not the house of his prisoners? On the one hand, it's a derogatory phrase. On the other side, it also gives you some insight into some of his activities. This is, of course, the passage in Isaiah 14. If you undertake a biblical study of the origin, career, and destiny of this strange personage, there are two passages that become very foundational. This is one of them. We're going to take a look at a corollary or parallel passage in Ezekiel 28. They're easy to remember. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. They're both multiples of seven, which has no significance other than as a mnemonic to help you remember it. The chapter labels are man's edition about the 15th century, so there's no significance in chapter numbers, candidly. However, it's an easy way to remember the two passages. One is double the other. So let's pop into Ezekiel chapter 28. Now what makes this provocative is that Ezekiel does the same thing that Isaiah does. It happens that Ezekiel is taking off after the king of Tyre. 
Tyre and Sidon were the major cities of that area that we probably know as Phoenicia, on the coast, north of Israel, a maritime province of a great power in its day. And the ruler of Tyre is the subject of Ezekiel's tirade here. And if you go through Ezekiel uh, 28 and move on through about verse 10, it's straightforward Ezekiel beating up on <laughs> the king of Tyre. But then verse 11 on, Ezekiel does the same thing Isaiah does. He shifts gears. Verse 11, Moreover the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, and don't be thrown by that phrase. That's just an idiom that uh, Ezekiel uses of himself, or God uses of meaning son of a man, you mortal man. That's what he, I mean, it's, don't confuse it with the title of Jesus Christ as used in the New Testament. It's just a phrase that in Ezekiel is, is, is the common nickname, if you will, of Ezekiel. Son of man, take up the lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God. So this is God speaking through Ezekiel. He's speaking to the king of Tyre, but the subject becomes obvious. It goes far beyond any mortal person by any name. Finishing off verse 12, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, period. Well, acquaint King James English for saying that you, whoever he's talking to, sealest up the sum. That is, you're the peak you're all there is. You're at the top of the heap as far as wisdom and you're perfect in beauty. Well, I don't know who the king of Tyre was. A guy by the name of Josephus tells it was an idiot by then, and I haven't met him, but I don't think he was the wisest man ever walked the earth, nor was he the most beautiful guy that ever walked the earth. That's my premise. But that's what this says. Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. We'll quickly see in verse 13, no way does any mortal man fit the character that is being addressed here. Verse 13, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. You've got to be kidding. Who is in Eden in the garden of God? I can think of three people I know, right? The Nachash, the shining one, and Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve blew it, so they got kicked out. But I mean, that, the population, I think, was rather limited. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Is he talking to Adam or Eve? I don't think so. He's talking to the power behind the king of Tyre. Do you see the parallel? It's intriguing to me that in both cases, both glimpses we get, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, the same mechanics are used here. This guy that was in Eden, he sealed up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You know, we've got to start stripping away some of our misconceptions. We think of... Satan is evil, and therefore that he's ugly. If evil was ugly, you and I would not have the problem we got with temptation. Right? I won't ask for a show of hands. Perfect in beauty. Satan was perfect in beauty. And full of wisdom. Is he so smart? How did he get in such trouble? The same way you and I do, through pride. And by the way, it's just a small point, footnote, pops into my mind. Recognize that the place that you will fail is not in your weak suit, it's in your long suit. That may come as a surprise. I'm not saying you won't fail with your weaknesses either. We probably want to cover all bases. We'll fail with everything we got. But, <laughs> but I'd like you to think hard about our friend, your friend and mine, Peter. Boy, Peter had strengths and weaknesses, but boy, if you were going to list his strengths, the one thing Peter had was courage, boldness. 
We identify with Peter because he's ready, fire, aim kind of guy. And he had a medical problem. He had foot and mouth disease. But other than that, Peter was courageous. In Gethsemane, he draws a sword, slices off the ear of the high priest's servant, right? By the way, do you know why Christ healed it? Why did Christ heal the high priest's servant's ear? Save Peter's life, you betcha. Interesting thought. He had a lot for Peter to do later. Now, how did Peter blow it? By denying Christ three times before the cock crowed twice? Of all the ways you and I would have predicted Peter would stumble and fall, you would assume that he would do it by being excessively bold, not showing, showing some judgment. We'd never expect him to cower, hide, and curse that he ever knew the Lord. You follow what I'm saying? So all of us here are probably conscious of that long suit that you have, that particular set of skills that makes you exceptional. Watch out. It may shock you. I won't get into the personal thing. It may shock you that I have a long suit. But I can tell you where I fail the worst is in my longest suit. I used to preach this, and I had to taste it once again. You will stumble in your longest suit. Why? Because the root problem is pride, the ego. Okay, Lord, I can handle it from here. Oh, yeah? Oh. Anyway, so here's Satan, full of wisdom, who did some pretty stupid things. Now, one of the questions that will run through your mind is, gee, if Satan is so bright, so smart, how can he be doing today such bizarre things as opposing God? You're going to fight God who knows the end from the beginning, who's outside time altogether. You, a however powerful, still relative to God, a puny being, you're going to fight God? You've got to be kidding. You must be stupid. No. He fell through pride and he sinned, and sin begets sin. And the more sin you're in, the more sin it begets. And he's had centuries to become totally psychotic. Doesn't mean he's not very bright. There's nothing more terrifying than to be opposed by someone who's psychotic and very resourceful. Don't assume that someone that's psychotic is stupid. The most terrifying kind of uh, aberration you can face, even in, in, in worldly terms, is someone who's psychotic and very, very bright. You follow what I'm saying? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.